0: But before we do that, let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Indeed, Father, it's been said that before we talk to men about God, we should talk to you about men. So we come to you this morning, Father, asking you to give us wisdom and insight regarding our own hearts and lives and our community here as a church family and the community you have called us to here in Southeast D.C. We pray, O Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak directly into our hearts, Lord, on the truths that will make us new and set us free. That you would speak directly into our hearts, Lord, the comforts we need having been embattled and bruised by the world this week that you would speak to us a a word of insight and vision and knowledge that will propel us forward as we live for you and witness for you in our generation. Lord, we're desperate to hear from you and your word this morning. We're desperate, O Lord, to be awakened, to be revived, to be stirred up afresh this morning. We're desperate for you. Come near to us, your people, we pray. Inhabit our praises Abide in our hearts, uh, fellowship with us, commune with us by your spirit. Help us to commune with each other, O Lord, in your word. These things we ask, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll recall that as we began 1 Peter in verse 1, Peter referred to his audience as elect exiles. And we meditated on the, the sort of, interesting combination of words that that is. That elects means that they were chosen by God, um, by God's love. They are really loved people. We are really loved people. But exile means that they are displaced. They are homeless. They've been forced away from where they are supposed to be uh, into a vast world that will never be their home. As Christians, this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven with God. So we are these very same elect exiles, journeying through a hostile world, trying to live for a holy God. And the question is, how do people who are scattered, who are displaced, who are homeless, who are forced to live where they they would rather not be, how do they forge a sense of identity and community? How many of us in this room have already had this experience, not just in the spiritual, but in the natural? So many of us in this room are are immigrants and refugees. You're living in the United States, but this is not your original home. This may not even be your original language and culture. And you have come here, and one of the first things you have had to do is to figure out where do I belong? To whom do I belong? How do I build a community? Those of us who even call the United States home, many of us who are African American, we are in the land of our exile, and our entire history has been one of trying to make a home here, fighting for freedom here, fighting for rights here, fighting for acceptance and participation here. We have been in the land of our exile trying to create identity and trying to create community, first with each other and then with the country as a whole to be in exile is to have this profound experience of not only being dislocated, but dismembered from community, separated from loved ones, separated from society, and having to build a society. That that happens, again, whether we're immigrants or refugees, and it happens if we are Christians, or at least it ought to. We ought not forget that this world is not our home, and we ought not forget that our most natural connections of biology and family are not our primary connections, but Christ is, and the church is, and our work is to forge an identity and to forge a community that is pleasing to God. What does that look like? Well, if you were putting this sermon into sort of one point, this is the big idea for the sermon. This is the big idea for the sermon, that God calls his people to form a community defined by love. That God calls his people to form a community defined by love. If you ever want to get an amen from Peter, all you got to do is exhort the Christians to love each other. He loves that virtue, and he loves practicing that virtue. He's a great example among us of one who loves the saints, who loves the the fellowship of believers. And that's what God has called us all to be. Now, when we look at this text this morning, verses 22 to 25, we want to see three Cs in terms of the outline. Number one, we want to see the command, the command to love one another in the second part of verse 22. Number two, we want to see the conditions the conditions under which that command to love one another flourishes. And number three, we want to see the cause. We want to see the the engine, the cause, what is driving all of this, what is producing the conditions, and what is enabling us to obey the command. The call, the conditions, the command, or the cause, excuse me, as it relates to being God's people, a community marked by love. And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is how Peter sort of lands the plane at the end of chapter one. And you'll see the command there at the second part of verse 22. He says, There, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now we need to think a little bit about the importance of this command to love one another. I mean, according to Jesus, love one another is the second greatest commandment, second only after love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And in fact, Jesus says in John chapter 13, around verse 34, that by our love for one another, that's how the world will know that we are actually his disciples, that we are actually his followers. This is our calling card. This is our badge, well, it wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that there are three virtues that will always remain. Hope, faith, and love. And he tells us that the greatest of these virtues, the one that always abides, is love. Indeed, Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to say this, I don't care if you have all the gifts I don't care if you do great, miraculous works. I don't care if you give your body as a martyr to be burned at the stake. If you don't have love, all of that's just noise. All that's just a clanging gong. In fact, not only is that nothing, but if you don't have love, you ain't nothing, is how Paul puts it. That's in the Ebonics translation. Now, the Apostle James picks up on this too, Right? So James tells us things like this, you cannot claim to love God whom you have not seen when you do not love your brother whom you see every day. And, and James will go on and say this, let us not love beloved in word only, but let us love in word and in deed. So love ain't about talk, love's about talk and action, right? Right? Now, here's the thing that, that I, I want to show us here. Every Christian in the, uh, leader in the Bible, from Jesus all the way through the apostles, they put at the top of their list of, of virtues and priorities, love. Love is the star that you put on the top of the Christmas tree. L- love is the, is, the, is the sort of shining, bright, uh, characteristic, of God's people. We are meant to be a community marked by love. Now, Peter's been talking about holiness, and so what I want to suggest to you is that holiness, when it goes public, looks like love. Looks like love. Rich, deep, biblical love. And if scattered exiles... Are to build a sense of identity and community, according to 1 Peter, they must do that by loving each other. That's what should gather us. That's the glue that should hold us together from all of our walks of life, all of our different backgrounds, all of our different ages and ethnicities and skin colors and heights and sports teams and politics. All of that is meant to be held together by this glue called love. Now, Peter draws our attention to the quality of this love. Did you see that? He draws our attention to two qualities that should define love for the Christian. First, it should be earnestly. We should love each other earnestly. Or you may have a translation that says sincerely. Or you might have a translation that says deeply. right? All those are, are trying to get at the same thing, but how many of us know that, that words kind of lose their punch over time? And more, the more words get used, the, the kind of less the meaning sort of rests on us. Even the word love. We use love for everything. And so love almost means nothing, doesn't it? Right? And so the word here that Peter uses for earnestly is a word that in the original would mean something like this. Love one another with every muscle straining. Love one another with every muscle straining. So we should love one another as if we're in the gym going for our personal record, for our personal best. We're we're doing deep, heavy squats. And, and we, we're straining to, to get the bar up, uh, to, to make that personal best. Or, or we're on the bench and we put the plates on the, on the bar and we're straining now to, to get that personal record, to get that bar up to the top and, and to rock it again. See, I used to do those things. I know looking at me, you can't tell. Can't tell now, but I know what I'm talking about. That's what our love should be like. We should be, as it were, flexing every muscle in order to love each other deeply and sincerely. Love is not a light reps kind of day. It's strenuous. It's straining. And y'all know it, just like I know it, because there's some people that we don't find easy to love, ain't it? You know, Bible say love one another, and that person's face comes to mind, and we like them to God. And there's some people we don't necessarily feel any animosity to them. They're just different. We find it just hard to even have a casual conversation with them, you know. And so we would rather keep a respectable distance, wouldn't we? We're not going to be impolite. We say hi. And we speed up a little bit, get to the car. Yeah, y'all know like I know. Now don't look at them, don't look at them right now. (laughs) The question becomes, do we want to be earnest in our love? Or do we want our love simply be offered at times and places and to people for whom it's convenient? He says, love each other earnestly. Now, here's the powerful thing about this word earnestly. One of the other places you find it in the Bible is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Lord to take this cup from him. He is praying in agony, and the Bible says he is sweating great uh, drops of blood. It says there he was in earnest prayer. That's the other picture here of this straining, of this flexing every muscle. It is, it is loving to the point of dropping sweats of blood. We love like that. And secondly now, Peter teaches us that love must come, notice, from a pure heart. Paul tells us a similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, the aim of our char- charge is love, which is- issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, deep love, sincere love, straining love, can't come from a fake heart. It can't. We all know folks who fake, don't we? We sometimes fake, ain't we? When we wave, and, hey, how you doing? I ain't seen you in a long time. And you, you, you running the other way? Right? That, that's, not, that's not deep love. An insincere heart won't produce sincere affection. And so the Bible is putting its finger, messing around in our hearts a little bit, sort of asking us the question when it comes to loving the other brothers and sisters in the church, are we sincere? Are we true? Are we genuine? Is it coming from a heart that's really real? Or Is it coming from that churchianity? Is it coming from that religious practice? Is it coming from the traditions of men? Is it coming from having learned how to go through the motions? Or is it really real? All of our feelings and words and actions come from, Jesus tells us, the abundance of our hearts, don't they? What's abundantly in our heart? when it relates to the people of God. Is it love or something else? Is it sincerity or is it fakery? If our hearts are impure, then our love will be impure. I love the way uh, scholar Edmund Clowney comments on this. He says um, of this text that God and, and Peter uh, will not be satisfied with tolerance or acceptance, far less with formalized distance. He will have love, sincere love, without pretense or hypocrisy. I love that. 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 Because God is not going to be satisfied with us just living beneath the standard that he's called us to. He's not. He's going to stay after us. Because the standard is the standard. The call is the call. The command is the command. And he's going to work in us to produce that very thing that he has commanded. That we would be the community of love that is fitting for his name. The whole church is meant to be filled with this kind of love. And let me encourage us to think this way. That our work as a church is not done until we love this way. This will be a lifetime ambition for us. This won't be satisfied by a New Year's resolution. This will be satisfied by the application of grace and grit as we embrace each other and care for each other when it's hard, when it's easy. As we become the community that God would have us to be. I hope we can see this morning, beloved, that biblical love is not a light or an easy thing to do all the time. I hope the Holy Spirit as a consequence gives us grace to crucify the idea that love should be easy and convenient, that that he just won't let us pull back, that he won't let us get that acceptable distance, that as we're trying to back up, there's something kind of in our back pushing us, nudging us forward. We're trying to move away from someone, but something, someone, the Spirit of God just keeps bumping us toward that person until we stop moving toward them in resistance and until we embrace them willingly and gladly in love. We say it's too much, God. It's too much to love like that. We all know that feeling, don't we? But it's at that precise moment where we are feeling, God, it's too much, that our love becomes supernatural instead of carnal. That it becomes something we do in God's power instead of our own power. When we find ourselves in those moments, I'm praying that I and and all of us would lean into those moments and hope in God. So that we grow in love. That's the command. That we would love one another. Earnestly. From a pure heart. Now. What are the conditions that are necessary. For us to actually live into that command. For us to actually make progress. In that command. This truth. Uh, the truth is, we won't be able to love like this unless certain things are true of us. And Peter gives us three conditions in these verses that must be present in each of our lives if we're going to love this way. And the first condition is this we must have purified souls. We must have purified souls. You see it there at the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. I don't know if we thought about this much, but we read those words, having purified your souls. And the first question ought to come to mind is how do we do that? How does somebody purify their souls? It's an important question. And we can't purify our souls with soap and water the way we do our bodies We can't purify our souls by doing good deeds or being a good person. That's what many people think. But the Bible says stuff like this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have the stain of sin on our souls, on our hearts. We've all become sinners. Or in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible's just not as optimistic about human nature as we humans are, is it? There's only one way to remove the stain of soul from our sins. Notice what Peter says there, by your obedience to the truth. Only when we obey the truth are our souls, notice now, completely purified, completely cleansed, completely made holy. Now, tragically, not everyone believes the truth. Not everyone obeys the truth or obeys the gospel. Romans ten sixteen. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And those who do not obey the gospel... Obey the truth, suffer God's judgment in hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes there, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter four seventeen. 17, to bring it back to Peter, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those, listen, who do not obey the gospel of God? The gospel is the kind of news, the truth is the kind of news that is meant to be responded to with obedience. We, we can watch the six o'clock news on our favorite television station, or we can get the news uh, almost any time any of the day. There are entire channels devoted to news or um, sometimes fake news or, or whatever. None of it obligates us. You, you don't have to obey it. You can watch the weatherman give you the weather report. He says it's going to rain. It's a 50% chance of rain. Uh, take your umbrellas with you, and you can leave home without your umbrella. You're not obligated to obey that kind of news. But this news, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected for us, this truth, that the only way to have our souls purified is that by obeying this truth, this news obligates us. So God says that he requires all people everywhere to obey the gospel. And he tells us specifically what that obedience requires. It requires repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That if we disobey by not repenting from sin, by not confessing it and turning away from it and turning to God, if we disobey the gospel by not trusting Jesus to be our righteousness before God and to be our sin bearer who takes away our sin, nailing it to the cross, if we disobey that, there is nothing left for us but judgment, but wrath and eternal hell a deserved recompense. And so here, nothing could be more important than that we obey the truth because disobeying the truth leads to damnation, but obedience to the truth, obedience to the gospel, responding in repentance and faith leads to a pure soul. For this truth has the power to cleanse things that you and I cannot touch even the soul now here's the good news in this text christian it doesn't say go purify your soul it doesn't say that oh verb tenses are so important notice what it says Is participle? is it a participle? whatever this phrase it says having purified past tense yourself it's already happened It's a completed fact in the past tense, right? So this thing that we need, this condition that we need to flourish in love is something that has already been accomplished. It was accomplished when we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that very moment, in that instant, eternally and spiritually, our souls were perfectly and forever cleansed because we obeyed the truth. I mean, this verse is a warm hug. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth. Christian, I, I just for a moment, just for 30 seconds, have a selah on that. That your soul is pure before God. Oh, I, I know you've got some sins like I do and some faults like I do and some things that nag you and worry you. And I know that there's the whisper of condemnation that comes to you because of your weakness, because of your, your failings. But hear God boom in this text. Over all of that, over all the whisperings, over all of the little little voices speaking so sneakily when you least suspect it, hear God boom from heaven, you are pure. You are pure because you have obeyed the truth. You have believed the gospel. Uh, Christian, this is the first condition that is already satisfied in our souls. We are pure because we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this. The purpose of this purification is at the end of verse 22. For a sincere brotherly love. So God's goal in the gospel is to purify for himself a people who sincerely love like family and he purifies us so that we can love that way. For a sincere brotherly love. Here it is. What God commands us to do, God enables us to do in the gospel. It's him who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He calls us to love. As hard as that call is, we, don't, we need not shrink back because he's the one at work in us doing it. The Spirit of God producing that fruit in our life. The strength, the strain, every muscle comes from God, not from ourselves. If we're Christians whose souls have been purified by obeying the truth, we have everything we need. To live this way. And if we're Christians whose souls have been purified by obeying the truth, but we do not love one another, then our hearts betray our gospel, don't they? It's just another form of unbelief. and Hopelessness that we need to repent of that we might live out what God is working in. He's purified us to love. Here's the second condition. You see it in verse 23? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the command to love rests on this condition too, the condition of the new birth, being born again. Peter says, now notice again, the verb tense, since what? You have been, past tense, completed action, since you have been already born again. Once again, it's not something that we do for ourselves. It's not something we do in our own strength. This is something God has already done in the gospel. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only because God raised you from death to life and put faith and repentance in your heart. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were controlled by the prince of the power of the air. We loved this world. We satisfied our flesh. We were dead before God, and God said, live. And in the gospel, we got up. We rose up new in life. We rose up born again. The old man dead and buried, the new man forever alive to God. That happened not because you and I got ourselves straight. That happened not because we went to rehab. That happened not because we got sentenced for however many years and got ourselves right in there. That happened not because mom and dad were so great. It happened not because we have a a famous and wonderful education. It happened because the Lord of life said, live in the gospel. (laughs) Notice what the text says text says, you have been born again. Now, that has mystified people since Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. You remember Nicodemus, the religious leader, the Jewish guy? Bible says he's a righteous man. He's not like the other religious leaders who hate Jesus and want to kill Jesus. Nicodemus, because his, his partners hate Jesus, like, I can't be seen with him in the daylight, so he comes to him at night. Sneaks up to Jesus, says, hey, I know you're a teacher. I know you teach the truth. And, and Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to see where you're really at. And he says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is befuddled. He said, can a man go into his mother's womb again and be born again? And Jesus says, stop tripping. I hey, know what that means. And Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit blows where he wants to blow. It's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you feel it, and you see the trees moving, and you know there's wind. And so it is with the new birth. The spirit blows where he wants to blow and produces this life, wherever he wants to produce this life. And Jesus says to him again, And so I say to you, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And here in this text, Peter picks up on that phrase that he learned from Jesus. you got to be born again. And he tells us now that this new birth, he talks not in terms of the Holy Spirit, but he talks in terms of a seed, that there is a seed planted in the soul that produces this new birth. Now, it's not like regular seeds. Regular seeds are perishable. You know, if you don't use them in a certain time, they die, right? Sometimes even when you plant them, if they don't get the right nutrients, they die. They don't produce the the, the tree or the plant that they were meant to produce. But not this seed. This seed is imperishable. It doesn't die. It doesn't waste away. It doesn't fail. Where this seed is planted, it produces life, guaranteed, every time. Now, again, Peter has gotten this from Jesus. Maybe as he heard him talk to Nicodemus, maybe as he heard Jesus teach by parable on a number of occasions, that the kingdom is like a man who goes about sowing seed. And he put some seed out there that fell on stony ground, and some seed fell among the thorns, And some of the seed that was scattered was eaten by the birds of the air. And some of the seed found good soil, and it produced fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. And Jesus would only explain that parable, that the seed was the word of God. And that sometimes the word of God is choked out by the cares of this world. And sometimes uh, in spiritual, I hope you realize this, that listening to the word of God is is spiritual warfare. That sometimes in the midst of this warfare, the enemy comes and he snatches this seed. And sometimes people begin well, but again, the cares of this world, the riches of life, turn them away from the seed, and the seed doesn't bear fruit. But for some people, it falls in good soil, in good hearts, and this seed produces fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. That's what Peter has in mind here in this text, that the Word of God is that kind of seed that produces life. New life, eternal life, that causes the believer to be born again. When you hear the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, mixed with faith, it leads to life. Maybe you say, hey, I've been hearing preaching all my life, and I'm not yet a Christian. Have you watered that seed with faith? Have you believed? and trusted in Christ? Are you playing an intellectual chess match with God? Or are you playing the kind of match with God where you say, hey, I'll believe in you if you do these things for me, as if you are God. No, I guarantee you, if you die to yourself and put your faith in Jesus, this seed will produce new life in you. That's the second condition. It's a lot like the first, but here Paul is saying to love the way we ought to love as a community, the community has to be made up of born-again people. This is why church membership is important. And this is why it's important that pastors and leaders be careful with admitting people into membership. Uh, We want to sort of distinguish between those who can give a credible testimony of believing in Jesus and having been born again and those who can't. Uh, Not that we want to be sort of elitist and separatist, but there's a new community, a new humanity that's being formed in the church, and it's our job to sort of take care of the borders of that. It's our job to make the gospel really clear so that those folks who are not believers or those folks who are deceiving themselves about their faith can see clearly what the gospel is and what it produces so that the bright, shining Light of this good news is made clear in our community so that others are brought into it and changed. So pray for us as we do this work. Pray for us that the Lord would, would tend to our membership and, and, and make sure that our membership is a regenerate, a born-again membership so that we can be a born-again community of exiles loving the way God calls us to love. And here's the third thing. Here's the third condition is that the word of God, that seed, remain in us, that it live and abide in us. That's what we see um, there again uh, at the end of verse 23 and and, and into verse 24. See that Peter says that the seed is uh, imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 where Isaiah uh, contrasts the, the flesh of man to the word of God. It says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And here, I think Peter is telling us that that the condition, the third condition we need in order to flourish as a community of love is that God's word abides in us, that it lives in us. It takes up resonance in our hearts in a permanent and an ongoing way, that, that, that we are meant to be people who, will, who glory in the spiritual and not the natural. I think that's what he's getting at when he says that the flesh is like grass, right? And, and the glory of the flesh is like the flower. In other words, many of us are, are in, in, in the world, in, in a natural life, we are, we are tempted to believe that the, the sort of meaning of life is to be the greatest persons we can be, to be the greatest at our vocation, to be the greatest at our sport, um, to be top of our class or, or making promotion at the job. See, that's, that's the flesh boasting in its own success, right? That's the grass flowering. But what happens to it? Well, the grass withers. The flower falls. So we're boasting in our biceps and our rock hard abs. We're in the gym doing the reps, right? And we're on Instagram flexing. As Miss Carol would say, just keep living. Muscles sag, faces wrinkle. We're on social media living our soft life, living our best life, right, our top 1% life. We're filming ourselves on the plane, you know, we're in first class, look at the poor people in the back, you know. Uh, We're, you know, on the island, and we're having a lovely time, and we got the lovely pictures. I'm I'm having fun. Y'all do that. Keep doing that if you want to, right? We're having fun. We got the pictures of the island and all that good stuff, and, and guess what happens? The money runs out, right? We don't take pictures at home eating bologna sandwiches. watching House Hunters International. That's our 99% life right there, right? We got pictures of the 1% life. Money run out. Don't party so hard no more, do we? The grass withers and the flower falls. The flesh dies and the pride of life goes with it. But what remains? The living and abiding Word of God. That remains forever and is meant to remain in us. If we're going to be a community who loves like this, we got to be people who abide in the Word and have the Word abide in us. Let me give you just a couple of cross-references here Just show you how wonderful this is, what, what kinds of spiritual benefits attach to this. John chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. Apostle John writes there, if anyone does not abide in me, this is Jesus speaking, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and in the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, though, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Did you know God's word abiding in you produces an effective prayer life? It, it produces the kind of relationship with God where you will want what God wants for you and you will ask God for it. And if God wants it, wants it for you, you will have it. Have we drawn the connection between God's word abiding in us and the fruit of our prayer lives? Let me, let me give you another one. First John two fourteen. John writes there in this little letter, I write to you, young men. I tend to think he's talking to me. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Our victory in spiritual warfare, our overcoming of the evil one was accomplished in the gospel on the cross where Christ crushed Satan's head, but it is walked out and lived out as God's word abides in us and we in it. What benefit is this that through the abiding word of God, we should have victory over Satan and his demons? Let me give you one more, 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God, there's a new birth, right, makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed remains in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has what? Been born of God. You see the the circle there? He says you're born of God by the seed. The seed remains in you. You can't sinning. Why? Because you're born of God. That victory over sin, victory over temptation, victory over those things that so easily beset us and trap us and smuggle us and take us hostage, that's found, that victory is found as the Word of God abides in you and me. Get in the Word until the Word gets in you, beloved. It's to our shame if our Bibles are the dustiest books in our house. It's to our shame if we read threads and Twitter more than we do John and Paul and Jesus. It's to our shame if all the opinions of talking heads and influencers and and pundits uh, sways us more than the Word of God itself. The living, abiding Word of God. What are we doing? What are we doing if we're building our lives on on the opinions of men, which is grass and flowers that wither and fall away, instead of building our lives and our hopes and our dreams and our plans and directions on the Word of God, which abides forever? It's a certain kind of insanity to live according to the thoughts of men rather than to live according to the word of God. Oh, that we will repent of our foolishness and our pride, our hubris in thinking we know something and thinking that others know something more than God, more than his word. Get in God's word, beloved, until his word gets in you. For it is meant to abide in us, this living seed that produces life, that remains forever, that gives us victory over the devil, effectiveness in prayer, that keeps us from sin. Get in this word until this word gets in us. Now, this is the cause, right, real quickly. We've seen the call to love one another. We've seen the conditions that we have purified souls we have been born again and that the word abides in us. Now, it's obvious. You've probably seen it already. What's driving all of this? What's the cause of all of this? Well, shortly, it is the word of God itself. That is interesting. The first time I read this passage and I started thinking about how would I preach this, what is Peter saying, um, my mind went to the command to, to love one another. And the command is there. But then as you just keep reading the passage over and over again, you realize like, oh, he mentions love twice, but he mentions the word of God several times. Did you notice that? In verse 22, it is the truth. In verse 23, it is the seed. In verse 24, it is a living and abiding word of God. And then he comes down to verse 25 and he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the thread running through this paragraph is this idea that the word of God is living and active and effective, producing these things in our souls. Really the star of this paragraph is not our love for each other, but God's word at work in us. Purifying, renewing, and abiding. And again, in verse 25, Peter says, notice that this word, let me make it clear for you, is the good news, which is literally what the word gospel means. This word that I'm talking about is the gospel preached to you. Now, this is amazing. This blows my mind. But the apostles understood that the preached word, the preached gospel, was the actual word of God. It was not simply that they preached about the word. Their preaching itself was indeed the word of God. Let me, let me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers there and he says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, Now, don't think scrolls and parchment and Bibles. Notice what he says. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us. So the word of God was their preaching. You accepted it, notice, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, this is... So powerful is dangerous because I don't want any preacher running around here talking about what I preach. Well, when I preach, that's God's word. That's dangerous. In the wrong hands, that's cult stuff. That's manipulation stuff. But the text is telling us that where the gospel is actually preached accurately, there can be no doubt that you have heard God's voice actually. Not the preacher's voice but in the gospel is God's voice. In the gospel is God's word booming forward in a living, fresh way. Not inscripturated, but auditorily, in the ear gate. So that, beloved, how we attend preaching is in many respects how we attend to God talking to us. That's not clear. Sometimes my children can be talking to me and I'm only half listening. I know I'm the only parent that does that. And they can be talking to me and saying stuff, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay, all right, all right. I'm only half listening. It reminds me of when I was uh my first job out of college, I worked with a little organization that um, worked with adults with disabilities to help them find jobs and to train them on the job and to integrate them into, um, you know, workplaces. And I had a a client named Dexter. Dexter's probably about 23 years old, uh, born with a developmental disability. Uh, Dexter's main sort of characteristic was enthusiasm. Dexter was happy about everything. His favorite word was wow. Right, so I take Dexter to an interview. Dexter wouldn't answer any of the interview questions. He'd be talking about what he want to talk about, doing his own thing, and the interview just be terrible. And we leave, and Dexter be like, "Wow, did you see that interview?" I was like, yeah, Dexter, I was there. What particularly it was hard getting Dexter a job. And, and uh, one day we we're in downtown Raleigh, uh, cobble streets in the in the middle of downtown. There, some of you know Raleigh. We're walking and. Dexter's walking, everything he sees, like, wow, you see that hot dog stand? I said, yeah, Dexter, I saw the hot dog stand, take a few more steps, wow, you see that woman? You know, he's just walking, we're talking, and Dexter, we're walking, I'm half listening, yeah, 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 Dexter, yeah, yeah, Dexter, and Dexter said, wow, did you see that? I said, yeah, 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 Dexter, I saw it. And then I noticed after a few moments that Dexter wasn't walking and talking with me anymore, so I turned around and looked at and Dexter was looking at me just with the most incredulous look on his face. And he said... Well, if you saw it, why did you step in it? <laughs> Some of y'all will get that all the way home. <laughs> and we listen to the word like that. I mean, there are all these explosions in the text. Wow, your souls are purified. Wow, you have been born again. Wow, the seed remains in you and produces this and that and the other. And sometimes we just like, yeah, okay, I heard that before. Okay, God, I hear you. We're in our quiet times. We're in the book. We're reading the book and, and just, you know, just going through the motions. And every once in a while there's something that peaks our interest. Oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. And, and we're moving along and not realizing this is God's very words to us. And we, we, we need more Dexter in us. Wow. Wow. Right? And we hear the priest's word. We need more Dexter in us. We're like, wow, that, that's true? That's true of me? That's true of us. This is what God has for us. Jesus is coming. He's bringing grace with him and a kingdom and glory. (laughs) Wow. Wow. But man, we just lean back. We like teenagers that ain't never impressed. Y'all raising some of them? I'm raising one. Just too cool to be impressed. God, help us. God, help us to hear the word of God for what it actually is, the word of God, and stand amazed that the God of the universe speaks to us and loves us and cares. What well, is man that he said, think of us? And he does. And he has given us this good news. If you hear here this morning, beloved, and you, you're not you're not yet a Christian, that little, that little couplet, good news, that's the most important word in this text for you. We've got good news for you. It's the gospel. When you said, what is the gospel? Well, we, we can talk about it in sort of four scenes. First thing, God made you and everything in the world. But he made you uniquely. He made you in his image and his likeness. He made you like that so that you could be with him and know him. to to receive his love and and to share in his his fellowship. That's scene number one. He made our first parents Adam and Eve like that, and we were all meant to be like that. Scene number two, our first parents decide they're not going to listen to God. They're going to listen to the serpent. They're going to listen to the evil one. And they did the one thing God told them not to do. They ate from a tree that was forbidden to them, and they broke God's command. And in doing that, sin entered the world. So now, all of us have been born with this corruption, this this sin nature, and and we love sin rather than God if we are, are left apart from his grace. And as a consequence, we deserve God's judgment. Third scene, God stepped into the world in the person of his son, in our flesh now. We were made in his image and likeness. Now he takes on ours. He enters the world and he comes into the world to do two things that we could not do for ourselves. Number one, to obey God the Father perfectly. That's how he supplies our righteousness. Then, number two, to die on the cross for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. We deserve the anger and the judgment and the wrath that God poured out on his son on the cross. But because Jesus voluntarily went to the cross in our place, those of us who believe in him don't have to. That's the good news. He's given us righteousness, and he's taken away our sin. He's given us a purified soul, and he's taken away our judgment. He's given us eternal life and he dies in our place. So that anyone now, anyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus will live eternally in God's love, reconciled with him to enjoy him forever. And beloved, the fourth chapter is written by you. Whether or not you will repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. All the history of the world occurs in those four acts. How are you going to finish your chapter? How are you going to end your story? My story and the Christian story will never end, for we will live forever with God in his kingdom. That's the story we encourage you to. Turn to Jesus. Put your hope in him. Believe in him. and Have your souls purified. Be born again. And have the living word of God abide in you. That's the good news. Receive and obey this truth. Obey this gospel and you will live. Disobey this gospel. And there's only judgment and hell left. Choose life. Choose eternal life. Trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Oh, how often have we said that and not gone, wow. Thank you for your word, Lord. Your living and active and abiding word. Your powerful word, which is ours, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for making your word the great cause of our change. Lord, we pray that more and more as a community of your people, we would be gathered around your word, we would delight in your word, your word would abide in us, that we would pass your word from from one heart to the other until we are built up in love, the kind of love that you have shown us in the cross, the kind of love that requires our straining, but that we do in your strength. We pray, O Lord, that we would be this kind of exiled community, making our way home to the new Jerusalem, loving each other on the way and gathering others into your love by your word. Help us to live this way, we pray, for your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.